Hey, everybody. If you have your Bible or uh, you like to use your Bible or an app, go to Genesis 15, or you're welcome to use your worship guide. It's the same passage printed there. As you make your way to Genesis 15, uh, just as a kind of a series update, in case you missed or in case you're new, we have been going through the life of the patriarch Abraham, just episode by episode. This is going to take us all the way to Christmas. We're just taking our time uh, looking at his life as it's presented in the text of Genesis. And we're asking the question every week, who is Abraham's God in this passage? Now, the reason we're focusing on that question every single Sunday, every sermon, um, we all have a tendency uh, to kind of carry around a picture or an image or an understanding of who God is in our own heads. I heard somebody say this week, and I can't remember where I heard it. I was trying to remember. I just, it was on a show or something I read. But somebody said, you know, we're all just walking around following the voices inside of our heads. <laughs> and we do that in our understanding of God. But one of the reasons God gave us his word in a book and in stories is to reshape the image into who he truly is. Um, because the God of our own understanding and inclinations as it comes naturally to all of us falls terribly short. And if we just start worshiping that God, the one that we made up, that's idolatry and it leads us astray. So God has given us these stories where he shows who he is to correct our understanding, not for the sake of us being right, but for the sake of our salvation. Because knowing God is what it means to be saved from the destruction that we have created ourselves. So every week, we look at Abram's story. Abraham, right now he's still Abram. His name will change eventually. Uh, and we ask, who is Abram's God in this passage? So this passage, we're going to do the same thing. Who is Abram's God? Then we're going to come around and ask, is this the God that we know? So if you would, Genesis 15, we'll read it. And then we'll, um, we'll explore what it has to say about who God is. <clears throat> after these things, okay, after these things, we should, what, what just happened? Um, remember, Abram had just fought in a world war and defeated the armies of the east and who defeated the armies of the west. And he came out the world champion, but he didn't keep any of the goods. Uh, he submitted all of them because he didn't want anyone to think that political power is what made him special. And then he's blessed by this mysterious king, Melchizedek, this king priest who reminds us of Jesus. All that just happened. And then after these things, 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, 
no member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside. And he said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram bought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they'll be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great processions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites are not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this story, this true story that you've given us in order to lead us to life and salvation through faith in Christ. God, I pray that you would do what you promised to do with your word, that it wouldn't go out from you void and come back empty, but that it would accomplish your purposes. So in this time, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, big question. What does this passage tell us about who God is? who Abram's God is? Well, the answer is it tells us that he's a covenant-making God. Here in this story, God makes a covenant with Abram. This is a very famous covenant. We find covenants in the scriptures throughout the story of the Bible. It's something that's actually very important to how the Bible all fits together. But this covenant, this covenant might be one of the most famous because this is the covenant that God makes with Abram to where 
basically the beginning of Abram being the leader or the father of a great nation, which says in Galatians and even says in Romans 4 that we just read that anyone who has faith in Christ is Abram's offspring. Well, that's true because of this covenant. That's who God shows himself to be here, a covenant-making God. So in order for us to understand that, we need to spend some time considering what a covenant is and then how covenants in Scripture are particularly unique. And then we'll circle back to this covenant. So first, what is a covenant? Uh, again, covenant is kind of a popular word, especially in Christianity. There's like, it's, it's something that comes up. We say, you know, we pray, we thank God for his covenant of grace. There's churches called covenant, Presbyterian church or whatever. It's a familiar word. But sometimes familiar things are uh, so familiar that we forget that we don't actually know what they mean. So let's take a moment. What is a covenant? Well, covenants are all about relationships. When you hear the word or read the word covenant, you should think relationship. Uh, covenants determine, they define, and they declare the nature or boundaries or rules of engagement for a relationship. They determine a relationship. They say what it is or what it's going to be. They define a relationship. They help to clarify its purpose. And then they declare what that purpose and what that meaning is. When I was younger uh, and I first became interested in uh, dating, I learned very quickly that as a young man, you can't just hang out with girls and expect that a relationship is going to happen. If you, if you like each other, at some point you have to have a conversation that I don't know what they call it now, but back then we called it the DTR. Do you guys know what a DTR is? It's the define the relationship conversation. And that's when you go, you know what? I like you. And, I'm, and the other person says, well, I like you too. And you go, okay, I guess we're in like with one another. And I guess you're my girlfriend now. That's a DTR. We, many of us have had those conversations. Well, covenants do that. They define the relationship. Um, they also, uh, it's also a way to kind of put a stamp on the relationship to make it uh, clear that it's binding. Uh, most of our kids are out in the back, but you guys remember, we did this when I was a kid. When you guys were kids, did you ever do a pinky promise? Right? It's where you lock pinkies and a pinky promise is way, a promise, you should never break a promise, but a pinky promise, that's rock solid, right? Well, in the same way, covenants take what's often articulated in words and expressions and promises and they seal it. It's, it's, it's a point like a pinky promise. There's a before and there's an after. Uh, Covenants, even today, we use covenants for all kinds of things. Marriage is a covenant, but also things that are as common as buying a house or a piece of property. You sign a covenant that declares, determines, and defines the relationship between the buyer and the seller and the property. We interact with covenants all the time, which is 
One reason that it's quite spectacular that a God whose word is sure, a God who never changes, a God who is always trustworthy, a God is so, that's so much greater and other than we can ever imagine, that he has decided to use a human institution like covenanting to declare and determine and define his relationship with his people. It's incredible. It's condescension on his part. He works through covenants because we can understand what covenants are. And that's what God is doing here. So that's what a covenant is. Okay, got it. What about biblical covenants? Aren't biblical covenants different than pinky promises and house buying contracts? Well, yes, they are. Spoke of just a second ago about how God, who's infinite and other and glorious and uh, never changes and is always trustworthy, how he chooses to work through covenants and so that we can understand. He chooses to work on human terms so we can interact with him. Well, that's also that's true in the Bible. So when we see God doing covenant making in the scriptures, the nature of that covenant making looks like ancient Near East covenant making practices. So when God makes a covenant with Abram here, it looks like something that would have been fairly common in the ancient Near East. God was acting in a way that Abram could understand. And throughout the scriptures, we see these, we see God using ancient uh, Near East covenant-making uh, terms and tools as he's working with people. That's how biblical covenants play out. And there's really two kinds. Um, there's conditional covenants. Those are mutual. That's when you have... Uh, like later in Abram's story, we're going to see where he makes a mutual conditional covenant with Abimelech, king of the Philistines, about what wells they could use. Mutual covenants is when the covenant promises and commitments go both ways. And the relationship that's declared and defined and determined in the covenant is one of, of equal mutual back and forth relationship. A good example of a mutual or conditional covenant today would be, or even in the Bible, would be marriage. When two people get married, they both make promises to the other person. They're both held accountable to keep those promises, and it's conditional. Marriage is till death do us part. And there's even other conditions where, you know, if somebody is unfaithful, then maybe the covenant becomes broken. But it's a conditional covenant, and it's mutual. Both people, promises and commitments. So that's one kind. In the Bible, though, we often, maybe even more often, find the different kind, which is unconditional and hierarchical. Unconditional hierarchical covenants are when the covenant promises and obligations go one way. And we see these when, like, a king would come in and conquer a people, and he would be like, I'm now the king and you're my people. It's unconditional. The people don't really have a say because the king conquered them. And it's, and it's not mutual. The relationship is not really going both ways. It's hierarchical. There's a king and a people. And 
if that sounds a little uncomfortable or maybe offensive, you know, we also do this. Adoption is a beautiful example of a unconditional hierarchical covenant. When a parent or two parents decide to bring a child into their home and they make commitments to the child, and of course they expect the child to obey and honor their parents, but the covenant rests only on one party. So in the Bible, all these covenants that we find pretty much fall in one or the other category, mutual and conditional or hierarchical and unconditional. Here's the other thing about biblical covenants, ancient Near East covenants. They were bloody. They were very messy. It wasn't like buying a house and like going to the bank and sitting at a table and signing something. We see Abram like killing animals. He takes a, a heifer, like a cow. I, I, I guess he had help because they weigh a lot and you drag it out and cut it in half. We just read over that like it's not a big deal. That took some energy and that was quite a mess. Uh, there's a cow, there is uh, these birds. Um, what was the other animal? Uh, a goat, a ram. This was normal. Very often in the ancient Near East when covenants were made in order to seal the covenant, they would kill an animal. Now that's bloody. That's not something in our culture that's very acceptable. But that was a different time and place. And the idea was, you know, Abram, God had Abram separate them and put them in two rows. And the idea was the covenant-making parties, both of them, if it was a mutual covenant, or only one of them, if it was a hierarchical covenant, would walk in between the animals. Or sometimes they would have the blood of the animal sprinkled on them. And the idea was, it was saying, if I break this covenant, may I become like these animals. May I be put to death? May I become bloodied? And that was the way it was sealed. Okay, so we know what covenants are. We know the covenants in the Bible were basically either hierarchical or mutual, and we know that they were bloody, and we know that that blood represented the penalty for breaking the covenant. Okay, biblical covenants. Now, next question. What about this particular covenant? What kind of covenant was it? Was it mutual? Was it hierarchical? Is there anything special about the animals here and the bloody part? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is. This covenant is unlike, and this is why I wanted to paint that context picture for you, because this covenant is unlike any other covenant we find in scripture. Uh, Early Jewish readers would read this and just be blown away at what happens here because it was totally countercultural in the context of ancient Near East covenant making. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> God took a promise he had already made. You guys remember what his promise was to Abram early on? He promised three things, that Abram would have offspring, that he'd have a son and turn into a great nation, that he would have land, that God would give him the land of Canaan, and that he would be a blessing. You guys remember this? Three things, offspring, land, and blessing. Well, God has already made that as a promise, 
And when God makes a promise, it's unbreakable. So one unique thing about this is that the content of the covenant is not new. Hmm. So why would God take a promise he has already made that we should already trust and graduate it to a covenant? Did he need accountability in order to keep it? Or maybe Abram needed something a little bit more visible and sure and tangible to hang his faith on. There was not really, if we speak from one perspective, was there really a need for God to do this? His word was already sure. Leave that in your mind for just a moment. That's kind of the first thing. Is the content here? It's not new. Um, here's the second thing. Just about every covenant in Scripture is either hierarchical and unconditional or mutual and conditional. Well, this covenant doesn't fit either category. This is the only one in scripture that isn't one or the other. And to early Jewish readers, that would have really stood out because that's breaking the rules. It's supposed to be one or the other. This covenant contains aspects of both. It's conditional and mutual in that God comes to Abram and makes promises and commitments. Hey, just like I promised, I'm going to give you offspring. You're going to have offspring. They're going to be as numerous as the stars. I'm going to give you land. You're going to take the land of Canaan. You're going to take all these surrounding territories. You're going to take all the way from the river Egypt all the way up to the river Euphrates. And just parentheses as an aside, that part where it says from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, in the Hebrew, the language there is almost identical the language of Genesis 2, where it describes the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. That's just a little thing on the side. Pretty awesome. So God comes. He's like, I'm going to give you offspring like the stars. I'm going to give you land. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to make you a blessing. Now let's covenant that together. But then God says, and we don't actually see it in this passage. We see it in the first verse of chapter 17. God gives Abraham something to do. He says, but you got to be faithful to me. You got to walk in my ways. In fact, let's just read it. 17.1. God says, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So God gives Abram something to do. So God comes to the covenant. He makes promises. And he has Abram make promises. That's a mutual covenant. It's conditional. If either side breaks the promise, covenant's off, right? It's framing out that way. But then God has Abram put, you know, kill the animals, put them in two rows. And the idea would be both promising parties would walk through. And right when it's time for Abram and God to walk through, God puts Abram to sleep. I imagine it was like one of those fainting goat videos on YouTube. Abram's just like, Probably, maybe not, but you should watch that video later. Um, God puts him to sleep. And then something special happens. Somehow in his deep, dark sleep, Abram is able to see that a torch and a smoking fire pot move through the animals. Well, that's strange. Well, if we keep reading our Bibles, we see that God, the Lord God, Yahweh, shows up as fire and smoke over and over again 
as a burning bush, as a pillar of fire, as a cloud of glory with flames and smoke. So here's where we are. Ancient Near East, God's using this covenant thing in order to communicate with his people. He doesn't have to do it. He chooses to do it. It's condescending, like when a parent gets down and talks to their kids on their level. And then he, in a world where covenants were either mutual or hierarchical, he starts out with, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do this. You're going to do this. We're going to have a mutual two-way relationship. But when it's time to seal the deal, to say who's going to have to pay if the covenant is broken, God puts Abram to sleep and he walks through the animals for both parties. That's hierarchical. He's the king and Abram is his new conquered people. He put him to sleep and he walked through the animals. It all rests on him. So in the end, what we have here is the relationship that God declares, determines, and defines with Abram. And as we learned with Romans 4 that we read earlier, with all of Abram's children, which includes us. That relationship is as strong as an unconditional covenant, but it's as open as a marriage. Do you see how amazing this is? You know, when God puts Abram to sleep and he walks through, he does the walk through the animals thing. God says, it's God saying, if this covenant's broken, may I be like these animals. And my mind goes straight to God become flesh in the person of Jesus who is lifted up as the lamb of God to be bloodied and put to death as a covenant breaker. What God is saying here to Abram, this is the kind of relationship I want to have with you. I, you. I am the king. I am the Lord God. I am infinitely higher than you. And that's not going to change because that's who I am but I want you to be in relationship with me like a husband is in relationship with a wife or like a friend is in relationship with a friend. Abram, Abraham is the only person in scripture that's called a friend of God. And in order to secure it, God makes it clear that all of the covenant obligations rest on him, and all the covenant penalties will be taken by him. And so when Jesus Christ, the son of Abram, the son of Abraham comes on the scene as God become flesh to live as a covenant keeper and die as a covenant breaker, he is fulfilling this covenant. It's beautiful. Now, that's who Abram's God is. He's a covenant-making God. And the kind of relationships with people that he determines, defines, and declares are unlike any other relationship in the world. It's strong, but with an open invitation. 
Now let's talk for just a moment about Abram's response. Because I know we're running out of time, but I want to hit this because it's vital for the passage. And it's vital for us here today. Every week we ask, who is Abram's God? And then we ask, is this the God that we know and believe in? Well, is this the God that we know and believe in? You know, after God had done all of this, well, I guess in the process, we, we find out that Abram says in verse 6 that he believes God. And God counted to that belief to him as righteousness. And that verse, it's picked up later again in Romans 4 to show us that since all of the covenant obligations are fulfilled by God, and the covenant penalties are taken by God, all we have left to do in order to enter in is simply to believe. So Abram believes, he has faith. And that faith is counted to him as righteousness. Well, folks, that's really important for us. Because I know that one thing I struggle with, I believe that probably all of us struggle with, and that our culture really struggles with, is understanding that faith is passive belief. We tend to think of faith as something that we do for God. We tend to think of faith as some kind of religious gymnastics that we need to do in order to get his attention. But it's not. Faith is stopping. Like the Westminster Confession of Faith says, it's resting and receiving. This is another reason why God put Abram to sleep. He wanted Abram to know, you can't do anything to earn this. And we live in a time where faith is framed as some sort of like, uh, if I, what I, I, faith is like some kind of inner projection of my spiritual being, or faith is some kind of spiritual achievement, or it's, it's believing really, really good, really, really hard enough that it gets, gets God's attention. That's not what faith is. It's passive. It's simply saying, okay, I'll take it. And that's so critical because that's the only kind of faith that's strong enough to carry the weight of our doubts. Abram in this passage speaks to God. This is the first time that Abram speaks to God in his story thus far. Did you catch that? Nowhere in the story has he said anything to God yet. Only in this passage thus far. And in this passage, every single word he says to God is an expression of doubt. God, how are you going to give me offspring? I'm 100 years old. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. God says, look at the stars. He says, how are you going to give me this land? How are you going to do it? Every word Abram speaks is doubt. Well, our culture very often says that doubt is the opposite of faith. And you know what? In the church, we haven't done a good job of saying no to that idea. We have made doubts a matter for shame and for silencing. But the good news, the gospel of God's covenant of grace is so strong because he's the covenant keeper and he's the one that took the punishment as the covenant breaker. It's so strong that it can handle your doubts. 
And that's good news. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this covenant that we live in today, sometimes very hard to believe in. Really? God's already taken care of everything for my salvation? Really, I don't have to become a good person first? Really, all of these people who I see that I think are terrible and have hurt others, God can say yes to them without them changing first? It's hard to believe. But God is not afraid of that difficulty. And as your new pastor, my hope and my desire is that our church can be a place where doubts can be spoken and heard without shame. Because believing in the gospel is not being smart enough or religious enough to be doubt-free. Believing in the gospel is fixing your eyes on the God of the covenant and saying, Lord, it's all you. I love where Abram says in verse 8, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I'm going to possess the land? And God says, bring me a heifer. Bring me a goat. Bring me a ram. Bring me a handful of birds. Abram says, to paraphrase, Lord, I struggle with doubt. And God says, to paraphrase, put your eyes on the Lamb of God. God says, I'm the covenant keeper in Jesus Christ. I'm the one who pays the penalty for breaking it in Jesus Christ. You are the one that lays down to rest and rely on Christ alone for salvation. That's the good news of who God is. Is that the God that you believe in? Let's pray. Lord God, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your covenant. Lord, from everlasting to everlasting, from infinity to infinity, you are always faithful, always trustworthy, always good. And for some reason that we will never understand, But we have a name for it. It's love. Because of your love that we will never understand fully. You've decided to condescend, enter into this kind of relationship with us, fulfill all the obligations, take all the penalties in order to receive us as your friends, to receive the church as your bride. How glorious. Lord, I pray that you would help us to say no to the pressure that we feel to try to make our faith our own religious performance. Our own religion can never be strong enough to carry this covenant. Lord, I pray that you would help us to say no to shaming others when they ask hard questions. I pray that you would help our church to be welcoming and safe for people to investigate who you are. 
Lord God, I pray that you would help us to rest and rely on Christ alone for our salvation. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, the Lamb of God. We pray it in his name. Amen.